I, I feel we have great work to do together here today. And perhaps in truth, really, it feels more like adventuring, this endeavor of today. Perhaps even mischief. It, it really feels like a, a joyful purpose that brings us together. And there might be times during the day when it will feel like work, when it may feel dogged and hard and difficult work. But I feel that our, our purpose in gathering here to together evoke the fragility of life is a brave endeavor and a courageous one. And in the end, a very simple one. Because what we're doing here is evoking what is already true for all of us, certainly for ourselves. It was and it will be for evermore. And I am utterly and completely certain and convinced and sure that our endeavor today is so worthwhile. What we're going to do is succulent and pregnant with every possibility and also terribly important. Important for us and important for the world in which we live. And what a blessing that we have each other today. We're a community here together, a community of, of seekers. And as we join our hands and hearts together, it feels important that we remember that we're joining hands and hearts with all men and women everywhere who care about love, who care about the truth of what it means to be born human, who care about what it means to live a life that is wakeful, that is honest, and that is authentic. <coughs> so as we call our circle together, if I could use that phraseology, I invite you to remember that we are in community, we are intimate with, say, the men and women up at the Insight Meditation Center up on the hill, who are sitting and walking, doing sitting and walking meditation through, through the days and nights. They essentially are doing exactly the same as what we're doing here, only with a slightly different form. We're certainly in community with the women and men who are cooking us lunch today and who've made this day possible. We're in community with our Dharma brothers and sisters, others who, like us, to whatever degree, have been inspired by the teaching and the example of the Buddha, wherever they might be. We're in community with them, and of course we are in community with women and men of all spiritual traditions everywhere, who care, who wish to love more, and to be more awake. And ultimately, of course, even though they may not think so or even like the idea, we are in community with all human beings. We are holding one another every moment of every day of our lives. They and all the creatures everywhere. We are certainly not alone today in what we do. We all share the fragility of our existence. So in beginning our day together, there's a way of acknowledging one another, there's a way of acknowledging our community, and also honoring the courage that it's taken each of one to be here. Some of us may not be feeling too well today, and we're here. Some of us may not have slept so well last night and are tired, and we're here also. It's taken a lot of care and often a lot of sacrifice to be here. 
And so what I'd like to do is invite you, if you wish, as we go around our circle, just to smile, to, to, to wave, if you wish, to nod, to say nothing if that feels more comfortable, or bow, as Chris suggested earlier. So that each of us can be seen by the rest of us, and remember that we are not alone. Acknowledge our community, welcome one another, and just see who it is that has chosen to be with us here today. I'd like to do this in opening, and then following our opening, a, a period of, of, of silence, a period of meditation, during which I will offer very abbreviated meditation instructions. And towards the end of that period, I will read some of the words of the Buddha that really speak to the heart of what it is that we're endeavoring to do today. And then after that, as Chris said, I will give a further vision of our day and want to assure you that really who we are in the end is going to determine how our day together unfolds. I just have a vague idea idea which usually goes out the window anyway, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to try. <laughs> there are people who would like to have been here today who are unable to come. And so before we actually go around the circle, I invite you to bring to our circle anyone that you feel you'd like to have here to be present with you people alive maybe, people who are suffering, or maybe people who have died, who probably have lessons to teach us that are so important. You also may want to evoke or remember ancestors, people who inspire you, people whose presence you may feel around you. So as we call our circle initially in silence, you may want to either out loud or quietly inside just bring to our gathering all those that you feel called to do so. Let's bring my mother, my father. Spirit of Jesus Christ. Shall we just move around the circle for a moment? I'm Gavin. I invite you to take a comfortable position. We'll probably sit together for no longer than 20 minutes. It's always a good idea to be aware of the sitting posture. <clears throat> Sit as perpendicularly as possible. That'll probably be the most comfortable way. You may, if you wish, allow your eyes to softly and gently close. In these initial minutes, just be aware of your sitting position, your body on the cushion, the chair. Allowing yourself as wholeheartedly possible to arrive fully here, now. Together. Being aware of the feelings of pressure or any other sensations that may arise in the body. 
allowing them to come, arise, and pass away. Just being aware of the truth of what is happening in your body here and now. And of course thoughts are going to arise, just allow them to pass away also and return to the experience of sitting here together this morning. The willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of a meditation practice. And in your own time, as it feels comfortable for you, allow the awareness, your attention, to move to the experience of breathing. being gently present with the changing sensations of the breath as it enters, as it leaves your body. Without changing the breath, just allowing the body to breathe itself and being aware of the sensations of the air entering and leaving. Wherever you feel the breath most distinctly, allow the awareness to be there. Maybe the tip of the nose, the rising of the chest, or the in and out, the rising and falling of the abdominal area. It doesn't matter. Being present with the experience of breathing here, now, together. One in-breath, one out-breath. If your attention is called away, as it surely will be, to thought, to sounds, to emotions, giving those the same quality of attention and returning the experience of breathing. Being present to the birth and the death of the in-breath, the arising and passing away of the out-breath. The willingness to begin again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. And the heart of the teaching of the Buddha. And I offer you now his words spoken two and a half thousand years ago. Let them also arise and pass away, being as fully present 
as possible with what he said. He said, this existence of ours is as transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movement of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep, steep mountain. Thus shall ye see this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, dream. Life is so fragile, more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing that those who think that after an in-breath there will indeed be an out-breath to follow. How truly astonishing that they believe that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. This is Chang Su, Taoist Chinese sage. He was a bit of a humorist. He said, the birth of man is the birth of his sorrow. The longer he lives, the more stupid he becomes. Because his anxiety to avoid unavoidable death becomes more and more acute. What bitterness. He lives for what is always out of reach. His or her thirst for survival in the future makes him incapable of living fully in the present. breathing, one breath at a time, here, together, now. another quote here by another of our ancestors who 
we all know. Mark Twain, I didn't want to include his words in, in the last bunch, but he said, let us live, let us so live that when we come to die, even the undertaker will be sorry. <laughs> hey. <laughs> okay. So I'd like to ask and invite that we spend today largely in silence together. And there's a good reason for this. What we're going to be doing today is going to bring us perhaps closer to edges within ourselves. And if you're anything like me, one of the ways that I distract myself from those parts of, of me that are uncomfortable is by, of course, talking, hopefully as eloquently and as busily as possible so that I can avoid what is not proving to be very comfortable. So the silence is a traditional part of uh, coming together um, in uh, Buddhism, in the Dharma, and I invite you to participate in the silence as fully as feels comfortable for you. We'll have a short break for, for uh, you know, a glass of water or a quick cup of tea uh, in the middle of this morning at some point. And um, we'll break for lunch, as Chris said, at 12.30. And we'll reconvene at 2 o'clock. And I'm not sure exactly when we'll end, but we will definitely be complete at 5 o'clock, perhaps a little earlier. Just depends. Um, how, how, how things unfold. There will be many opportunities during our time together to speak and to, to hear one another, times for dialogue and for questioning. It seems terribly important that there be opportunities for us to listen and to hear from one another. We have so much to learn and I, for one, am really excited about the blessings that this day is going to bring to my life as I get to know each of you a little better. And hopefully I and all of us can listen that carefully that we don't make the same mistakes as others that have gone before us, that they have learned the lessons for us also. So I invite you to just be as wholeheartedly present with what anybody says today. It's a wonderful way to be in community. I invite you to participate as fully as feels comfortable for you today. You may wish to surrender completely to the forms and to the structure of the day and let go of any expectations that you might have. On the other hand, if at any point it feels like it would, be, it would be better, that it would be taking very good care to perhaps step out and go off on your own, please know that it is terribly important that you do that also. So there's no compulsion to be here. And getting up and leaving at any point is fine. I invite you just to hesitate before leaving, even for a few moments, just to be sure about why it is that you're going. It's so rare what we're doing today. It's so rare to be held in the way that we're holding each other already. It's so rare to be in a facility of this sort that is prepared to wholeheartedly support us in what we're doing. And it's not long that we have together, really. It's, it's so precious and so, so sacred what we have here. Now, I'm sure some of the people who, who you've told that you're coming here 
have probably thought, well, what a gloomy and morbid thing they they're going to get up to over here. <laughs> so, you know, one can hardly blame anybody for thinking that. But I want to to tell you that from from where where I am, I feel like today is all about love, and it's all about joy. Coming closer to what is true to me is the most trustworthy kind of joy that I know. And I hope that for each of you, as the day unfolds, this too will be self-evident, in spite of whatever difficulty or any roadblock you may feel you might come upon. So I'd like to begin by introducing myself. Uh, I love stories, so so uh, there we go. I'm going to tell some stories. I'm going to tell some stories of the Buddha, and I'm going to tell some personal stories. And then after that, we'll have some tea, and then we'll come together for some reflections t- together. Uh, and those will be guided and and introduced. A, a little later, but I'd like to give a fuller context for the day. So the Buddha was born two and a half thousand years ago. I'd just like to give a brief synopsis of his life for those of you that are not familiar with it. In the foothills of the Himalayan mountains into the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribe in what is present-day N- Nepal. And the queen fell pregnant and there was great rejoicing in the kingdom. And apparently 64 holy men came to the palace uh, and predicted that this child that was going to be born was either going to be a great ruler, or, or, or that he was, he was going to be a great ruler, he was going to be a king, and uh, the, the father was very happy to hear this. He was an ambitious man. But these holy people also said that he might also be a great spiritual ruler, or a spiritual ruler, a great spiritual teacher, a great savior, a great leader of the way. So he could go in either direction. And of course, dad wasn't too pleased with this information. Well, the child was born, and shortly after his, his, his birth, a famous ascetic at the time came to the kingdom. His name was Asita, and Asita held the young infant and burst into tears and cried profusely. And the mother and the father, the queen and the king, were most concerned and said, why are you crying, of course? And he said, I'm crying because this child is going to grow up to be a Buddha. He's, he's, he's going to be a great spiritual teacher. It's so long since someone is going to awaken as this child is. And he said, I'm crying because I won't be here to hear that teaching. I will be dead. And the king was most concerned. And so what he decided to do was, he he decided to bring this child, whose name was Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, (coughs) up in every luxury. He was going to surround him with everything that any child could ever want. And this is what happened. This boy had, had a palace for every season of the year, beautiful gardens in which he could play. It's told that at nighttime the gardeners would sweep through and remove all the dead flowers and replant new plants so that this boy only saw loveliness and beauty around him. He had young, lovely uh, men and women, girls and boys to play with, and as he got older he even had a concubine for his pleasure. He was completely protected, and he lived this idyllic life within the palace walls. Until one day he decided he wanted to visit a nearby flower grove and see what the world looked like outside. His father was, of course, concerned, and so his father decided that what he would do is he would line the streets with lovely, beautiful people strewing flowers on the ground so that his son only saw saw that, and that's what happened. Off they went in his chariot, to a nearby flower grove. And some distance from the palace, out of the crowd, stepped an old person. And Siddhartha said, what on earth is that? And his charioteer said, well, that's an old person. Everybody that is born is one day going to grow old. 
And he was so shaken by what he saw that he turned around and went back to the palace. A few days later, he set off again. And this time again, a strange sight stepped before him. And he said, well, what is this? And his chariot said, this is a sick person. And he said, everybody that is born healthy will one day be sick. And Siddhartha was so shaken and upset. He went back home, clearly in turmoil. And a few days later, he tried again. And on the way to the flower grove, this time he saw something beside the road. And he said, and what on earth is this? And his chariot said, this is a dead person. And a few days later, he tried again. And on the way to the flower grove, this time he saw something beside the road. And he said, and what on earth is this? And his chariot said, this is a dead person. He said, everybody that's born is going to die. And Siddhartha was really upset, turned around, was sort of inconsolable apparently. Wore robes, had a bowl, simple and holy life. And he said, well, what is that? And his charity said, this is someone in search of truth who's given up everything. That understanding is, in the end, the most important thing for this woman or man. And that's what Siddhartha decided to do. He gave up all his, his, princi- his princely wealth and abundance and relinquished his entitlement to the throne and left home and uh, began his own journey. And after six years, it's a long story, I won't tell the whole thing, having studied with all the teachers of the land, having, having adventured with, with, with other seekers, he went off on his own and one day sat under a tree and said, I don't know if, yeah, here, he sat under a tree, and this is a sort of a classic gesture, and he touched the ground and he said, may the earth bear witness to my right to know the truth. And although he was assaulted by the forces of his mind that tried to prevent him from being completely free, he was enlightened under the Bodhi tree. And about a week later, he offered his first discourse to to the people that he'd lived with in the forests. And it was at a place, I think it I might be wrong, was it Sarnath, where, where he gave his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, his first teaching, and really the kernel of the Buddha's teaching, these Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths are very important, and really they are the foundation of, of our time together today. So I'd like to just explore them very briefly. The first of these Noble Truths is the truth of suffering. He saw that there was suffering everywhere. Sometimes it was almost indiscernible, but he said there was a pervasive experience of unsatisfactoriness in himself and he perceived in all human beings. And he said, this is the first truth, this truth of of suffering, the first noble truth. And the second noble truth he taught was of the cause of suffering. And he said that the cause of suffering was very simple. He said, we suffer because of our inclination to cling desperately to things. He said, we want things to be pleasant and we push away things that are unpleasant. And he said that there are four things that we cling to. He said, it's very simple. The first thing that we cling to is everything that we experience through our senses. So we cling to a pleasant sight that we see or we push away anything that is unpleasant. We cling to pleasant sounds. You may have heard that, you know, a bird, oh, how beautiful, but a car's brake screeching, we push it away. And so the mind is clinging, pushing, pulling again. We cling to pleasant tastes, to pleasant sounds, to pleasant thoughts, and push away unpleasant thoughts, and pleasant emotions, unpleasant emotions. And he said that this pushing and pulling is a fundamental cause of our suffering. So we cling to sense pleasures. We also cling, he said, to views and opinions. We hold on to our views or we reject other people's views. He said, we cling also, he said, to rites and rituals. 
He said, people become so attached to their rites and rituals, like if we came together today and got really into worshipping the flowers and everything, which is of course an important thing to do, but didn't penetrate to the deeper teaching in it, then it would just be another attachment that we then push away or we pull towards us. And the final kind of clinging that we do, and the most tenacious, and in some ways the most important for us to understand, is the clinging to the notion that we are separate, that we are isolated, that we're individual, that I am an absolute island to myself and completely disconnected and separate from other people, that, that, that I am... Um, the notion of selfhood, is, as it's put in the text, is the final kind of clinging. And we'll be dealing with this a lot today. The idea that we are purely and simply a body. So that's the second. So the, the first was the fact of suffering. The second was the cause. The third of these noble truths, and the, the fourth, which we won't go into much today, the third is the happy one, which is the end of suffering. He said, there is suffering, there's a cause, but he said there is an end to the suffering. And the fourth noble truth, the last one, is the way out of suffering. And that's a part of what we're going to be exploring today, this fourth noble truth, that there is a deliverance from the suffering. And I feel it's probably safe for me to assume, to say, that for each of us here, together, in some individual way or other, we've each been paid a visit by our own particular four heavenly messengers. Those, the, the sick person, the old person, the corpse, and the person who stepped out of the forest are referred to in the scriptures as the heavenly messengers. And that each of us in our own way have been visited by our, our own particular heavenly messengers. And so what we're doing today really is we're choosing together to face life as squarely and as honestly and as wholeheartedly as possible. Our heavenly messengers have perhaps in some way destabilized our sense of things that to some degree has seemed to serve us for so many years. So here I'd like to tell a little uh, of my own story. I, th I think it's important for us to acknowledge sometimes why it is that we began our journeys and what our hopes and dreams and yearnings for were when we, we began. And as Chris warned, I may read a little from my manuscript from time to time. And when I do so, I'm just going to read from it. I'm not going to say that I'm reading from it. It'll be, it'll be sort of clear. <coughs> Had I known what was in store for me, I probably would never have left the straight and narrow road from Peter Maritzburg to Itopo for the dirt track that took me to the wild adventure that was to change my life forever. Compelled by an innocence and naivety far younger than my 30 years, I yearned for speedy and comprehensive deliverance from the confusion and suffering of my life. Nothing less than a swift fix and a fast return would do. As the undulating countryside in this valley of a thousand hills slipped beside my car, I had no inkling that I was about to take my first faltering steps upon an ancient path traveled by countless others before me, that my heart and spirit could be wildly ignited by a teaching of 2,500 years would have seemed a ludicrous notion at the time. My ascent to that mountaintop in December 1980 began a journey that was to shatter every notion of who I thought I was. It was a foggy evening and my headlights missed the little signpost directing me off to the right of the car. When I reached the village of Itopo, I have to take a drink and say that really properly because I think this is the only time I'm going to say it. 
There we go. It's I can't do it. It's a click that's in the Zulu and the Kwaza language. When I reached the, the village of Itopo, nestling at the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains, I knew I'd gone too far. I slowly retraced my way and found the turn-off. I began my bumpy ascent up the mountain. In that darkening twilight, the way ahead was to take me to distant corners of the world, where I would meet new friends and find myself in situations that would change my life forever. I had no sense that I was about to call into question every facet of my life. And one day, as the shattered pieces of that life lay about my feet, I would find a love and contentment far wider than the remnants of the nightmare I was quite willing to relinquish. That night, as I wound my way beside misty Zulu villages and through great forest lands, I drew closer to my introduction to a teaching that would catapult me way beyond the limited notion of who or what I thought I was. And much later, within the fire of vicious disease, this left turn up the mountain would unquestionably sustain me as I entered a life close to death. And the same teaching within the self-same fire would bring the deepest sense of fulfillment and calling to my life, despite the flames of my circumstances. High above the village of Itopo, I stepped out of the car and breathed in the clean, thin air. In that moment, my footfalls began their long journey of deliverance from the life of mediocrity and purposelessness that was destroying me. I'd been living in New York City before returning to South Africa and my life there had been, in the 1970s, had been a really fast, very gay and wild and affluent life. I was working as a certified public accountant at the time, had a huge bank account and my apartment was on the 32nd floor of this building and out of the window I could see the Statue of Liberty in the, in the Hudson River and out of my bedroom the Empire State Building was there, lit up every night. I was the pride and joy of my mother and father and the envy of all my friends way back in South, in South Africa. I really thought I'd made it. And one day, for whatever reason, it was as though those heavenly messages came up the elevator to the 32nd floor and stepped through my apartment. And uh, I remember the moment I was sitting on, I'd, I lived in Iran for, for four years and had all these Persian rugs, and I was sitting on my Persian rug in the living room, surrounded by everything that I'd ever wanted, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. It was a devastating moment. And it was the culmination of that crisis that got me to that mountain that I was reading about. And that's where I met Joseph Goldstein. And that was the beginning of my own journey. And I spent a year at Itopo and returned here and um, tried to return to my life in New York City. And it was impossible. And instead decided I was going to... Um, ordained as a monk and uh, really begin a period of sustained meditation practice. And it was in the week prior to that decision that I made the one most fateful mistake of my life. I had a large, wild, sexual fling before beginning the holy life and this was in 1981, and it was during that week that I was infected with the AIDS virus. And this was long before we even knew there was a virus. It was long before the word AIDS had even entered our vocabulary and before we even knew about safer sex. And so when I entered that monastery in the Redwood Forests of California, it was a Burmese monastery, all the while from the very beginning my body and the virus were locked in a deadly battle with one another. 
unbeknownst to me as I took up my new residence in a tent in the forest, the virus in my body had begun, the virus in my bloodstream had begun its replication. And it was at that monastery that I was introduced to uh, death awareness practices, and it was really fortuitous for me that that was the case. And I'll be speaking more about my time at the monastery a little later. But in those next years, in the next eight or nine years, in the 1980s, so many of my friends were getting sick and were dying. And by 1989, I'd lost upwards of 50 friends to the virus. Uh, it was a really heartbreaking time. And I returned to South Africa in 1989 to be with two very dear friends. Roy was uh, a, a lover of many years, many, many years before. Um, an Afrikaner man, and uh, he died. As my plane landed at Jan Smuts Airport in Johannesburg, Michael died soon afterwards. This was long before the era of these new drug options that are here. People at that point really didn't have much in the way of options. And it was, of course, very difficult for me, and a couple of nights before I was going to come back home, my father had like a massive heart attack and my mom and I rushed into the bedroom and in our arms in about five minutes he died. He was dead. And so I stayed, you know, an extra month. Eventually came back, absolutely exhausted, sick, stressed out, got myself tested and discovered that I too was HIV positive, that I was now sort of in community with all my friends uh, who had gone before me. And it's been almost 10 years now since then, July 9th, 1989. And there are not many benefits, I can assure you, of living with AIDS. I'll never forget this. I know that some of you are from Cambridge. I gave a very stirring talk, it must have been stirring, one night at at CIMC. Maybe you were there that night, Karen, I can't remember, but I gave this talk. It was a lot of fun. It was after about three or four years when I didn't teach and then I came back to teaching and a lot of friends were there. And this person asked me uh, after the talk, he said to me, oh, God, he said, you've learned so many lessons. You've grown so much. You seem so happy. He said, you know, if there was a cure, he said, would you accept it now? Yeah. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, I would knock each of you over to get to the back of the hall, first in line for the pillow and the injection. I said, make no mistake, you know. So I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> but I will say, and I can wholeheartedly say this, that it was a great privilege and a blessing to have the meditation practice as a part of my life at the time of my diagnosis. And what happened was the impact of that news was able to move into the center of the meditation practice. And I stumbled and fell, and at times it felt like I'd never meditated before. But I had choices, and we have choices, that a lot of people don't have. the power of awareness, just the awareness that we were practicing together earlier, watching the changing sensations of the breath arising and passing away, helps me, and if I may say, helps us enter the deeper considerations of what it means to be born human. Certainly I can say that having a constant reminder of my mortality is a tough path, but a sure path to the difficult questions of human life. When I was at um, Ikopo, I was introduced by an American man who actually stopped by to uh, Carlos Castanedas, and I, I got very excited when I read Castanedas for the first time. I remember one night, it was, it was a moonlit night, it was gorgeous there. And I decided, well, if Castanetus can do it, I can do it. Do you remember that part of the book where he goes like, 
careering through the woods, you know, and there were trees everywhere, but he doesn't hit the trees, you know. Well, I did that. I won't tell you what happened. <laughs> but anyway, this really struck me, this piece, and I've never forgotten it. I wrote this actually at Ecopo, so this is almost 20 years ago, where uh, Don Juan says to Castanese, he, said, he says, you know, death is our eternal companion. He says, it's always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or you just have, your, have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel that everything is going wrong, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you are wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. And then he turns to Castaneda, I bet he was really challenging, and he says, one of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to women and men that live their lives as if death will never tap them. And one of the things I ask myself, ask myself today, I, I came earlier and was thinking about our time together, but I ask myself often, and particularly in doing this incredibly privileged teaching that I'm invited to do, is do we have to be taken by the scruff of the neck, by some wayward virus or some health catastrophe or some natural disaster or by the loss of a loved one? Do we need it to be shaken into an exploration of what it means to be born human and mortal on this exquisite planet? And I always come to the same answer. I think not. I think not that each of us needs necessarily to be shaken in this way. And if we are shaken, what a blessing that we can find a place within ourselves where we feel resolved to use this to our advantage. And I feel that is the essence and the kernel of why we're together here today, to touch and inspire one another and cheer one another on. And I feel that if our spiritual journey is authentic and if it is true, we must eventually come to the really important questions. The questions like, who am I? Who is it that dies? Why do we suffer? And is there truly an end to the suffering? Is there security in life? And then, of course, where is there security? Is there anything that's not changing? Because if something is changing, it cannot be secure. That's what the Buddha was talking about in the Four Noble Truths. He said, the cause of suffering is our attachment, but everything that we get attached to is changing. Our views and opinions change. Our senses change. The sounds, the sights, the tastes change. Our rituals change. Our bodies are changing. And we attach, it changes, we suffer. It's so simple. And for me, the question that I always come to in the end is, where is the love in this? Where is the love in the middle of this fire? There has to be love. I believe. Of course, I don't speak for everybody. And I feel that all of these questions, all of these questions are stepping stones to the big question and the big issue, which is the issue of death and our fear of the death that is inevitable for each of us. I love that phrase, 
in the Bible, which I've sort of personalized, particularly during difficult moments, where I say to myself, it is my birthright, and I know it, I'm certain that it is my birthright to know that peace which passeth all understanding. And I'm convinced that that peace has everything to do with love. And I feel that that love is not a possibility for us until we've come face to face with our mortality. That important, I feel, is our day. And so what is this death? I mean, you know, it's certainly the demise of the body, as the heavenly messengers remind us. And it's also the death of the ego, this sense of a separate gallon, an important self-important gallon. It's the evaporation of all sense of separation, any notion that I'm separate from you and that if you're hurting, that I'm not hurting. I mean, it's a ludicrous notion. If one of us is hurting, we all suffer. If one of us is oppressed, we're all oppressed. And any experience of life that is different from that cannot be true. We are so intimately interconnected with one another. The death of Gavin, with all these attributes, with all these attachments, with all the comforting labels that I have, this is the death that is most scary for me. The fear of death for me is not so much a terror of the unknown, it seems, but more rather a wild and deep anxiety of being separated from all that I've depended upon, all that I've identified with, all that I've drawn comfort from, and all that I've felt a measure of security with, all of which today are becoming increasingly suspect. These things that I've depended on for so long. This is that second noble truth. Everything that I've depended on seems to be unreliable. The views, the opinions, all the sensors, all the pleasures. And so this is our endeavor today. Hand in hand, our hearts joined to come a little closer to what is true for all of us. So I'd like to end this particular session close with the words of Rilke, who, whose words are far more eloquent than mine ever could be. And that will take us out to a quiet tea together. And I invite you just to be really present during the, the tea. So as you leave here, as you get up, just settle in. It's like, it's so precious to be wholeheartedly with oneself. And so use the tea break, not as a break, but as an opportunity to be with yourself and how you're feeling in a further way. And when you come back, I invite you to experiment with just doing that in a measured and loving way. I love Rocky. This is what he said. He said, It is true that these mysteries are dreadful and people have always drawn away from them. But where can we find anything sweet and glorious that would never wear this mask of the dreadful? Whoever does not at some time or another give his full and joyous consent to the dreadfulness of life can never take possession of the unutterable abundance and power of our existence. He or she can only walk on the edge of life. And one day, when judgment is given, will have been neither alive nor dead. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.